The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room host Michael Gannon sits down and has a conversation with change advocate and Marine Sherman Neal II. Today I have with me Sherman Neal, a lawyer, former Marine Corps logistics officer, and now he's working at Murray State University all the way out in southwest Kentucky. Now, Sherman, you've gotten some recent attention, and on March 30th, you were a keynote speaker for the Murray State University Rather West Kentucky Museum exhibit, Voices and Votes, Democracy in America, based on the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History exhibition called American Democracy, A Great Leap of Faith. Appreciate that, Kevin Gannon. So, Sherman, your history with the law started far earlier than college, and in your keynote address, you told a story of when you were a third grader and decided to address your habeas corpus rights with the school, and to be honest, I don't think many third graders can spell the word constitution or habeas corpus, let alone even know what it means. Could you go ahead and just tell the full story of what happened uh, back in third grade? This is a true story, and I didn't quite go to concert with my concerns to them, um, I wrote them out and tried to jump a level over, which is uh, apparently a theme in my life. So I was in de- detention for who knows what, probably throwing some food or something or fighting somebody in uh, sixth or seventh grade. And um, while I was in ISS, which is in school suspension, you pretty much have one of two options. Look at the arms of the clock move and try to you know, retain sanity until about three o'clock or you can pick up the textbooks that they keep in the classroom back there. So I actually learned a lot about politics and history reading through those. And um, I took the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, I believe Declaration of Independence and rewrote it to be a you know Student Freedom Act or some type of Bill of Rights. And um, my mom discovered that and she had me take that to our uh, City council, city council in Naperville, and had me read that to them uh, to air my grievances against the administration at my school. Probably for something that I actually did, but it was a first practice doing that. So you rewrote a student bill of rights. How well was that received? It went, it went well. Is it? And I don't recall anybody saying anything negative to me. I believe I just got a thank you and um, an audience, and and they listened. To, you know, twenty whatever it is years later, it's something that I value now, knowing that they don't have to do that. And um, it did not prevent me from continuing to be in detention or to change, you know, the rights of students, but it uh, definitely formulated the argument style that I have now um, in retrospect. Since you've transitioned from the Marine Corps, I have to ask, how did the Marine Corps prepare you to be a college football coach and take on the status quo in your community? So two things come to mind right away. And I'll be mad at myself you know, as a go if I was in the Marines for using, you know, these generic Marine sayings that all Marines say, but they ring true. Okay. Yeah. So the first thing is uh, doing more with less. Uh, every Marine period likes to use that term. You use 10% of what the Navy has. Uh, that's generally the same case when you're playing football at the FCS level. People hear Murray State, um, they see it on TV, and they imagine that we must get the same things that 
University of Kentucky or Alabama or one of those people get, whereas that's that's definitely not the case. Um, we have to do every job, uh, ranging from sweeping the stadium to, you know, the full spectrum of recruiting to to putting together game plans sometimes all on the same day, whereas that would be divided up amongst larger staffs. So definitely training as a logistics officer and know, having to know several different fields has come in handy uh, just in dividing up work. The, the second lesson that I've learned right away through football and then really through this movement that we have going on here is the 70% solution and acting upon it. People generally are adverse to taking any risk. And, you know, every day as a battalion four for me was taking risks because the odds of me knowing the technical aspects of, you know, how to repair a certain item or or, or account for a certain ammunition, it, it, it just wasn't there. I had to trust um, the Marines. I had to come up with a plan uh, that they can act upon and just run with it and be ready to adapt. And generally, people are, are not, um, from, not not that they're not familiar, but they're not comfortable with that. And they don't take initiative, um, whereas with Marines, you don't have that problem, right, wrong, or indifferent. And so that's definitely been an advantage. So, Sherman, in 1917, the Daughters of the Confederacy erected a statue of General Lee and placed it in front of the local courthouse. Could you elaborate on how you got involved with this statue? Definitely did not plan on spending the last year fighting the Confederacy uh, again uh, in the form of this statue. The The why behind I drafted a letter which led to an arrest and this, this movement here is really trying to find a way to, to get a victory um, for, for our players and while showing them, you know, the avenues to advocate for change in, in in civic organizations, whether it's local government or state government. To, to remove that would require two things. One, to teach um, our players who are the same age as the Marines that many of us lead uh, about how to engage civically, who the players are locally, who they are in the state, and how to, to expose those people's beliefs and attack them. Then secondarily, I truly believe that these statues are at where they're at, be it courthouses, uh, other very public locations, or um, or on military bases, honestly, to to indicate who is who has superiority, whose voice counts, and whose voice will not count. And these were all put up, you know, in a window where the Ku Klux Klan working with the UDC um, was working to suppress the, the black vote in the wake of reconstruction going away. And so in May, well, really dialing back to April, I saw General Berger uh, give the warning order to remove Confederate memorabilia from Marine Corps installations. That's something that I'd actually written in on my command and climate surveys for several years because it irritated me to no end. And to see that was amazing to me. The, the Marine Corps, as y'all know in the audience here, is not usually on the cutting edge of, of social justice initiatives or dynamics or political correctness, uh, if you want to classify it as that. 
So that indicated to me how serious the situation had become. And then two, um, the model for how he is doing it and the justification rang true for what we should have here. And so I, I decided to craft that letter to, to use the monument to discuss the very issues that he had brought up, whether it's unicohesiveness or what we want to be and what we are as a nation. And so rather than go to Chicago and, and protest with my sister, which was my original plan, I decided to not bypass the issue that was right in front of our face here in Murray. To refresh everyone's memory, at that time, the nation was experiencing substantial civil unrest in the wake of George Floyd's death, among everything else. So how was your letter received? And I'm not going to put words in your mouth because you're quoted from the New York Times as saying, I am a black male. I am no longer willing to accept state-sponsored symbols of institutional racism within my community. You don't mince words about it. You left no room for confusion. What happened next? With the letter and specifically to the reference of being a black male, um, I use that language very carefully. At no point in time did I list my status as a veteran or as a football coach or as an attorney because I didn't think that that was relevant for the discussion we're having at the time. I thought it was important to indicate that you know my status as a minority in this community um, was the driving factor behind why I decided enough was enough given the events over the two months there. So the immediate pushback came from the city um, being the mayor, which is the most frustrating type. It's the, well, we, we can't do anything. We don't, we can't eliminate XYZ red tape. So-and-so has the act in any reason not to speak to the matter at hand. Um, and th what's frustrating about that is, you know, as Marines, we, we understand that there's two different guiding principles for every order that we give. One, it's the accomplish the mission. And then two, you have to address the morality of what you're doing and why and being able to articulate that. And you see these government officials in some cases do everything they can not to address the morality of the issue. And um, that's what we had seen uh, early on. And then from the county officials, we had seen outright resistance and frankly um, allyship with these neo-confederate groups and in some cases a neo-nazi sympathizer who spoke before the court here uh, in an effort to i don't like to use the word dog whistle but because really in an effort to directly empower them to resist any change in the town in the form of that statue moving oh and that reminds me so you have the response, unwillingness, or avoidance. You have the accept it, move on, and encouragement. And then you have uh, resistance to, to change. You want to elaborate on the smear ad that got ran on you in the local op-ed or newspaper? Yes. So the, letter, yeah. so the letter came out in June, June 1st. And eventually the city, and you'll notice this, a theme here, which is really a theme of the country overall. I'll talk in terms of the city versus the county. The city has the university, the more liberal um, area, this 30,000 person county, whereas the county is more reflective of your, 
of your traditional conservative values. So to address your question, in July, there is a decision by the city to remove the Confederate monument. The problem is that the monument sits on about a five by five meter plot of land that belongs to the county. It sits in the middle of the city. Um, so there's a large protest by people who supported the city's decision against the county uh, at the base of the monument. While I was at the monument during that day, I was handed a five-page document with an image of me um, actually in Iraq on it. And the the title was something about Liberian terrorists. And basically the premise was that, you know, I was a sleeper cell operative of Liberia sent here to commit terrorist attacks. So the basis of why Liberia is because my, my mom is from Liberia. Uh, so my, that side of the family is, is from Liberia. She's a first generation. Well, I'm really a first generation American on her side. And, you know, Africa equals bad. One of those blank, blank countries, as, as a, a previous president had put it. So one, I was impressed, actually. I, I was impressed that they gave me enough credit to say that I could, you know, fake a secret clearance. I could subvert the Marine Corps surveillance mechanisms for 10 years. I could be, become a lawyer and just be a sleeper cell for 15 years of my life. Uh, and, and be able to commit terrorist attacks and choose Murray, Kentucky and their Confederate statue as the place to launch the New World Order. I thought that was pretty insane. But um, the the problem that, that, you know, it's not the letter itself, it's the what happened in the wake of that. So the, the document has detailed members of my family, uh, myself, my service, and um, who, who I was and what my motives were would be laughable if it hadn't been produced by realtors in, in the town who people knew who were prominent people. It would be a problem if those realtors uh, hadn't cited a professor from the University of Virginia, changed the words from uh, her studies on monuments to make it fake news, for lack of a better term, that people can take and run with and think that it's credible. And again, it's a microcosm of what's going on nationally um, where these people that are prominent people in society put out garbage. People take that garbage and look at the site, like the quick 140 character tweet rather than look at the whole citation of, the per of, of a person's work and run with that to make it cred credible to support whatever premise they have, which can get them to believe anything to include that you know, somehow I'm a terrorist who was able to outsmart the United States government for 10 years just to come terrorize their town, if that makes sense. And really the, the choice of picture to use, to use a picture of me in service was the strangest part to me. I would think that you would look for, it probably wouldn't be hard to find a, a picture of me being 20 years old somewhere on a beach, you know, acting a fool or something, but why, why choose the picture of me in a desert serving the country as opposed to something like that. So Sherman, after hearing that, I'm going to have to dig into your analogy about how this statue in Murray, Kentucky represents a microcosm of what is going on across the country. 
Everyone listening may not be aware that Secretary of Defense Austin directed that all hands across the Department of Defense conduct a stand down to discuss extremism in the ranks, which is why you and I are talking today. What is going on in your life, in your life right now perfectly relates to that conversation, and this conversation is messy, so let's talk about it. If this type of conduct and behavior is happening all across the country, 150 plus years later, and the very citizens that make up this country are also the very same citizens that enlist in commission, what does this collision of what seems to be two diametrically opposed ideas and beliefs mean to readiness as a nation and as a society? You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely a lot to unpack there. So in terms of national security, there, there is a real impact uh, to force readiness the ability, ability to generate a force and really the ability to have a diverse force because diversity is important uh, to make yourself ready, especially in a 2021 environment. The, the And I'll give a quick anecdote um, just based on one of the questions earlier about using uh, that propaganda in, in my own intersectionality as a weapon for why you can't serve. Now, there, there's not many representatives of the Marine Corps that are black Marine Corps officers in the first place. And then, you know, the few that are out there, especially that have served in, in the GCA, GCE, um, to come back and, and have that experience, which I know this, this is not a unique experience, uh, makes it hard to advocate for anybody to join, especially when, as, as you know, working in manpower, uh, it's tough in any community um, to, to pull those officers, especially in um, urban communities, let alone here. So the the decision on, you know, what we should prioritize in terms of tribalism is, is the reason I believe that General Berger um, ended up writing that letter and, and deciding to ban these symbols outright. Because the tribe that the people subscribe to who generally follow that flag, which I think we confirmed on January 6th is a negative thing, is incompatible with what incompatible with what we say we are and, and what we're supposed to support as a unit uh, in the Marine Corps or as a nation. And then if you allow those two incompatible beings being the Confederacy and what that represents, um, both in previous times in modern day and the United States and what we're supposed to be um, right now to operate next to each other, one's going to win. And from a straight manpower standpoint, again, we know that a disproportionate amount of the force, especially in the Marine Corps, comes from the South. Um, a disproportionate amount of bases are in the South. So we're asking people, especially if you're someone like me, again, to use myself, to leave Chicago into a force that is already heavily stratified, that force hasn't done anything to address the problem of, of the symbols that make it clear that you're not welcome until recently last year, and then move to the South, be amongst these people, and expect there to be you know peaceful interaction, or expect me to believe that you generally, genuinely want to have a conversation about my thoughts and beliefs 
And I think that's what General Austin, uh, General Berger, and really the DOD um, has signified an understanding of and, and, and is working towards correcting, which, again, they've done a, a, good, a great job, in my opinion, of doing that so far. Um, so, Sherman, I'm going to recap what the Department of the Navy is and has done, so bear with me for a second. In the summer of 2020, Navy Task Force 1 was stood up to look into the topics of diversity, inclusion, disproportionate effect of various policies, and um, this past January, the task force released the report that listed five uh, lines of effort, and I'm going to use two recommendations as examples real quick. Task Force 1 didn't have a knee-jerk reaction, and for over six months, they examined the data to make some deliberate course corrections and recommendations, but the, the Navy and the DOD are behemoth-sized organizations, and they don't exactly turn on dimes. Some things can be done immediately, such as you know adding respect to the core values, but using artificial intelligence to, to minimize bias in the selection board process is going to take some time. And the impacts of these changes will not happen overnight. The effect will take time to manifest, and it's going to be a slow process. Um, ships don't turn on dimes. I kind of I want to disagree with you there a little bit. All right. And an example is, so when I was at TBS, uh, if you remember, I said I wanted to be an infantry officer. The yep. facts are that I fell into a lot of stereotypes and couldn't do certain things. I hadn't been familiar with weapons. I was my first time using a rifle. I wasn't the best at the range. Uh, land navigation from Chicago, uh, generally, if not out in the woods, land nav was tough. Uh, swimming. I was one of the guys that could not pass the swimming test initially, despite having to teach myself how to swim before I got there and fell into that. Um, outside of that, all the other qualities I thought I possessed to, to work on that if I was given time to remediate and do better. And um, unfortunately, didn't get it. So what, why do I tell that story? It's because I also remember being at TBS during a time when they, they being the Marine Corps, was doing everything and anything that they could to get a woman to pass IOC. So every deficiency that I had, I would see deliberate um, remediation, uh, opportunities to, to take the task again, encouragement, um, bringing in people with similar understandings of how women worked and, and the, the issues that they faced to to encourage them to get through, not to alter the standards, not to meet a quota, but to present them the best opportunity to have success because they identified diversification as, as an important goal for the force. And within what, four or five, well, six years at this point in time, they've gone from zero passing to now it's wouldn't be in the New York Times. Now we have GCE commanders that are women. So literally within five years, if you make a pointed effort to correct course, you can do that. And so we would hope to see the same if they are truly invested in what um, the follow-on action should be based on the conversations we're having with these, these talks uh, at the highest levels. Positive reinforcement goes really, really far in taking anything um, from where it is, you know, just the vote of confidence, that self-affirmation, um, that team affirmation, 
um, really can carry the day. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's and part of a lot of criticism I get is, you know, why pick a statue? Why not pick something more important? And going back to that same time during TBS, um, you know, I remember when the orders came out to remove sexually provocative pictures from barracks walls and, you know, pilots were getting reprimanded or losing their units for drawing phallic objects in the sky. And I remember actively thinking like, well, it must be nice for somebody to prioritize phallic objects in the sky when every day when I'm on base, I see a flag of an, of an enemy of the United States and nobody says anything about it. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded April 5th, 2021. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast. podcast.